We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right the Fighting Mac was the man who our Anzacs revered. When he returned to Australia after reaching a state well beyond exhaustion, having served first at Gallipoli and then on the Western Front all of the time with the 4th Battalion, he was ordered home in late 1917, reaching Australia in early 1918. The war was nowhere near won. The Germans had beaten Russia, and now over one million of their battle-hardened soldiers were being poured into France for one mighty push to win the war before the Americans arrived. The people of Australia, the wounded veterans who had already been sent home, and countless numbers of Australians who felt like they knew Mac personally, were willing to travel hundreds of kilometres to hear him. For many of the families, touching him was important. They wanted to shake hands with him, and they did, until his hands were bleeding. Who was he, and what had he done to be held in awe by the men of the Anzac? Not easy buggers to win over. Well, one of the places where he earned his fame was in the fighting for Lone Pine, the ridge above where the most forward position of the Anzacs was at that time. At 5.30am on Friday 6 August, the Australians were ready to launch their diversionary attack to take Lone Pine from the Turks. The Turks had covered the front-line trenches with piled logs, sleepers and earth, and were doing the same to the reserve trenches behind. Coils of barbed wire had also been laid in front of the front-line trenches to slow the Australians' approach to the trenches, so that the men would be exposed to Turkish fire for longer, hopefully to be driven off before they ever reached the trenches. So it was no longer a case of being able to reach the trenches and jump in. It wasn't like that anymore. Reaching the trenches and getting into them was going to be a difficult, slow job. Prior to the attack, the men brought their packs and left them with the corporal, whose job it was to stop men from other battalions, not engaged in the fight, from stealing their belongings. The Australians had had what they called the best sport they'd ever had, shooting down the Turks who had attacked them from uphill on Lone Pine on the 19th and 20th May, just a few weeks before. Now they were the ones going to be in the open, coming from downhill. That should have frightened them. The preparations for the attack on Lone Pine had been in progress since June. Trench warfare in World War I wasn't new. It was a revival of the siege warfare of the 18th century, when trenches and saps had been developed into a fine art. Military historians must have been particularly valuable on both sides of the First World War, in Europe and in the Middle East. If you understood how the armies of the 1700s operated their trenches and saps, then World War I could be fought without having to relearn the lessons that by then had been mostly forgotten. 
One of the things that the Australians at Lone Pine seem to have learned was to use what are called saps. Saps are trenches that reach out like fingers to an enemy trench. The one that the Australians had built for the attack at Lone Pine brought the jumping off position for the Australians to within 75 metres of the Turkish trenches. Obviously this gave them a better chance of rushing the Turkish trenches across that much narrower no-man's land. As the Australians moved into position for the attack on Lone Pine, the British began to bombard the Turkish trenches. They had some successes. Artillery in World War I always did. Was it decisive? Usually it wasn't. It smashed some holes in the pine logs covering the trenches and blew some gaps in the barbed wire. The Australian soldiers had attached white material to the front and backs of their uniforms before the attack. Once they got into the covered, dark Turkish trenches, it was going to be impossible to tell friend from foe. The white cloth would hopefully help our soldiers from accidentally shooting one of their own or being shot. The attack was going to be a hard one to pull off. It was going to be unleashed in three waves. Each succeeding wave quickly followed on the heels of the one before. Some of the Australians, exposed to enemy fire when they reached the Turkish trenches, had to stand exposed to enemy fire over those trenches while they pulled up the covering logs, then fire into the trenches to clear a way in, and finally dive in head first. The first Australians to plunge head first into the Turkish trenches were almost certainly dead men. But other Australian soldiers who quickly plunged into the trenches after them did so so quickly that it was then the Turkish defenders who were swamped. Other Australian soldiers worked their way to the uncovered backs of the trenches and entered there, fighting their way forward with rifles, bayonets, bombs and any other weapon they could find, often in brutal and savage hand-to-hand fighting. The Turks were firing so rapidly that many of their rifles were soon overheating. The grease between the wooden and metal parts was sizzling and the firing mechanisms on their rifles were seizing up. This gave the Aussies the chance to charge them with little fire coming at them. The battle quickly became just hand-to-hand fighting. The Turkish 47th Regiment that had been facing the Australians at the start of the attack with 500 men was soon down to 33, with no officers still alive. The Turkish trenches were taken in the first half hour, an amazing success. But the Turkish command, seeing what was happening, ordered in reinforcements in the form of the 1st Battalion of the 57th Regiment, commanded by the man who would go on to create modern Turkey, Mustafa Kemal. He was no slouch as a military commander. The Turkish counterattack brought them new hope of success. The Turks quickly realised that the Australians were wearing white cloth to identify them and the Turkish soldiers started pulling the white cloth off dead Australians and affixing it to themselves. When this was realised by the Australians, they were then ordered to take the white cloth off their own clothes. There were bound to be men who didn't get that message and obviously a lot of confusion developed over this. It's not clear which wave Fighting Mac came with, but he was one of the early ones into the trenches. Even pagan secular 
Peter Fitzsimons, in his book Gallipoli, gives a couple of mentions to fighting Mac. He recognises his efforts in pulling men out of the brothels in the Wazza district in Cairo, but Peter Fitzsimons mocks it, a bit juvenile. That's not the image of the digger that a bloke like Fitzsimons admires or wants to think that they are. But as I said in a previous program, it seems like Mac made a huge contribution to personal lives and in reducing the incidence of venereal disease that cripple armies of fighting men made the Australian army stronger in the field against the enemy. And no, again, Fitzy has to recognise fighting Mac's unique qualities as a chaplain. This is the story that even inspired Fitzy, the pagan lefty. The story is best told by a Canadian journalist at the time, F.A. Mackenzie, the same name as Mac, the same spelling, but no relation. He had this to say. Anyway, getting back to what I was saying, Canadian journalist F.A. Mackenzie heard about the incredible exploits of Salvation Army chaplain fighting Mac in the fighting at Lone Pine, and wrote this, I first heard of William Mackenzie in the days when the Australian troops returned to London from Gallipoli. We had a Salvation Army chaplain with us, one hard-bitten Australian told me. My, he was a big, burly fellow and without a bit of nonsense in him. Some of the stunts he did would make your hair stand on end. One day at Gallipoli, we had to storm the stiffest part of the Turkish trenches. It was the worst bit of the whole show, and Mac declared he was going with us. Boys, he said, I've preached to you, and I've prayed with you, and do you think I'm afraid to die with you? I'd be ashamed of myself to funk it when you are up against it here. And he came along with us, right in the front line. He had nothing but a little stick with him, and he came out of the fighting without a scratch. He had a bandana handkerchief on his head, to keep the sun off. The handkerchief was riddled with shrapnel, and he hadn't a scratch. He was a man. Another soldier told a joke that Fighting Mac had told that the men followed him to the Turkish lines only because he had their pay in his pocket, and they were afraid of losing it. The bodies of the dead and wounded in the trenches were three or four deep. The Australian soldiers had to walk over them, horrified, by the quivering of the bodies underneath their feet. But if they wanted to survive themselves, there was no other way for it. On the second day of the battle, Saturday 7th August, an exhausted Australian officer, Lieutenant Leckie of the 2nd Battalion, was going through a communication sap and wrote about an encounter he had with Fighting Mac. He wrote, I felt tempted to sneak down a little way and have a rest. However, an undaunted chaplain was there administering to the wounded and the dying. He looked at me. One look was enough, and I went round to the new position with the survivors without any more inclination to quit the job. That chaplain was fighting Mac. Mac wrote to his wife Annie on 6 August about his experience in these captured Turkish trenches. The sight was awe-inspiring to see these young men jump out of their trenches and dash across the open ground in the face of shelling machine gun and rifle fire. They were magnificent, unstoppable, irresistible, performing marvellous feats. But the price was a heavy one. 
I was there in it all. The trenches were the most awful sight I have ever witnessed. Hundreds of dead Turks, and these intermingled with Australia's sons, lay in tears in some trenches, the dead on top of the wounded, and what a terrible struggle to get the wounded out. In his diary entry of the same day, not for Annie's eyes, he wrote, My experience of getting the wounded out of the trenches over the dead and wounded underneath was sickening. The burials in the tunnels within the trenches too was nerve-wracking, as was also the recovery of the dead in the open, as the Turkish guns were very busy by day and sometimes by night. Max's work during and immediately after the battle was of a draining intensity. He wrote, When this work was done, I buried in all something like 450 men killed in this and, and the next word is illegible, consequent days. These burials cover a period of three weeks when the smell of the bodies after the first four days was overpowering and frequently I had to leave the graves to wretch from the effects of the smell. The burials in Brown's Dig were frequently performed under shellfire. Several occasions, men were hit, and some were killed. He later wrote of his experience after the battle. My experience of the first week are beyond telling. I was worked to a frazzle for days and nights. I was in great pain from neuritis. All my reserved strength was used up, and I could hardly crawl around except in pain and with sheer force of will and the aid of a stout stick. The officers urged me to go away, but I was determined to stick it and see it through until the regiment was relieved. Mac not only buried the dead, but he brought in the wounded and collected two sandbags full of paybooks and identity discs off the dead. Mac said he found four dead Australians on their knees. They had been gravely wounded and knelt to pray as they died. A moving example of Mac's work burying the dead was the burial of Private James McGregor. He was from the 3rd Battalion, not the battalion that Mac was chaplain to. That was nothing unusual in the story of Mac. He was widely known throughout all of the AIF and by the tens of thousands of folks back home. He would see men from all units. Private McGregor had sought Mac out before the battle at his mother's urgings. Mac wrote that McGregor was labouring under great emotion and possessing all the religious reticence of the typical Scot. He was reluctant to reveal his true religious feelings. With tears in his eyes, he said to Mac, I want to be on the side of Jesus, but I don't know how to get there. Mac prayed with him, and he accepted Christ, telling Mac how happy he was and how happy his mother would be with the news. Mac found his body at Lone Pine and buried him. In one of his pockets, he found a letter addressed to the boy's mother. He told her of being born again in Christ. Mac forwarded the letter to her. Later in the war, he visited her at her home in Scotland. It was the same effort that Mac would make throughout much of his life after 
he was back in Australia. What made his hands so precious to so many was that his hands were the last human contact had with the dead body of their sons, their husbands, their fiancés and their fathers. Was he actually in the fight at Lone Pine as he said, well I've got something on that that I want to share with you. The cost of the Lone Pine battle had been horrendous. Nearly half of the 4th Battalion officers were dead, as were nearly a third of the men. Fewer than half of the battalion escaped being wounded. Chaplain Talbot, one of the other 4th Battalion chaplains, saw the 4th Battalion come back out of the line. He wrote, I shall never forget as long as I live seeing the 4th Battalion coming out of the trenches. The men looked like a thin line of spectres. In Eric Bogle's anti-war song, No Man's Land, his lyrics have these words, Did they beat the drum slowly? Did they sound the pipes lowly? Did the rifles fire oh ye as they lowered you down? Did the bugle sing the last post in chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? As I said in a previous program, even the diggers who didn't believe in God wanted to have a decent Christian burial. It was important to them, and Mac went well out of his way to give it to them. War is terrible, but it can't always be avoided, as Vladimir Putin has reminded us. There are people, bullies, who will use their strength to force their way on others, if they can get away with it. Australian Clive James said, unarmed goodwill is useless against armed malice. Freedom can't be obtained without a capacity for violence at least equal to the threat. Nothing has changed. So you can say you're against war and how terrible it is, but you can't always avoid it. Mac was one of the last Australians off the beaches at Anzac Cove, and now I'm going to shift his story to the battlefields of Flanders, the fighting in France. It truly seemed that it would be impossible for Mac to exert himself more than he did at Gallipoli, but that wasn't to be the case. The Australians were taken back to Egypt. Where to now? They didn't know. The number of Australian divisions had recently been increased from two to five. The main area of fighting now was France. The Gallipoli sideshow of Churchill's had not been successful, but the Turks were still a threat to the vital Suez Canal and the British wanted to attack the Turkish Empire through the Sinai and the Holy Lands, Palestine. So the infantry were sent off to France and the light horse were kept in Egypt, where they were going to add their immortal name to the history of warfare. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kalberg slogan for their beer. Probably the best beer in the world. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E.
You have to listen in to find out what it's about. 